Good morning. It is, uh, it's truly good to be back with you today. Uh, it's, it's, always, it's always a joy uh, when, you, when you come back to a place that you've been before because you're starting to know a few people. As you can think, I speak in a lot of, lot of different churches once. Um, I wonder if that's um, because I'm so bad or, or whether, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's just the case that I just get there once. But uh, So it's always great to be back at a place for a second time. Um, I want to speak to you this morning on a passage in Hebrew. Well, actually, I'm not going to say speak. Uh, you know, people often say speak when we stand at the pulpit. What we are doing is we're preaching, we're proclaiming God's word. And so unashamedly, I'm going to endeavor to preach God's word to you this morning. And I want to preach from Hebrews chapter 10. Let me just read the passage so that the first thing we do this morning is hear from God's word. Uh, and then I'll explain where we are going with this and why we are addressing this issue. Um, let me read for us. So Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through to the end of 25. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing nearer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we deal with your word this morning, Lord, our plea before you, our desperate plea, Lord, is that you would speak into our hearts, Father, that you would address our very souls, that we would be conformed yet again more and more to the image of your Son. Lord, help us through your Spirit. Help us to hear your word and help me to proclaim it faithfully so that we may be people that through every deed and every word that we speak bring glory to the name of your precious Son that gave us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So the reason I want to speak to you on this passage this morning really was catalyzed a couple of weeks ago when I went through camp and uh, I was talking to a few guys and, and I met this one captain who I have spoken to a few times and he said to me, oh, Tian, do you know there's a, a new major that has been posted into the armed school, and I believe he's a Christian. 
So, you know, immediately my heart leaped for joy. I thought, you know, it's not always that you have officers that are Christians that, that have put their hope in the Lord Jesus. And it's normally a great, great, great opportunity to have, you know, in, investing in men who are leading our troops and can really live as examples among them. And so, with no delay, I made a beeline to where his office was, came in, knocked on the door. I asked if the major was there. They said he wasn't there, so I went looking for the other place where he was. Eventually, I found him. You know, uh, everything you could imagine a, a British army major to be was resembled in this guy. And I introduced myself, started speaking to him. Uh, we spoke for about five, six minutes. As we spoke, still no indication that he was a Christian. He didn't let me know he was a Christian. So I let it out. I said to him, you know, Captain so-and-so said to me that you were a Christian. And he said, oh, yes, I, yes, I am a Christian. And I said, have you ever been involved with Sazra or anything like that? And he said, no, not really. I know they're about, but I've never had much to do with them. And so I invited him for coffee, accepted my invitation. We went down to the chapel, sat down, ha had a coffee, and I asked him how he was doing in his Christian life. And he said, well, you know, I'm doing quite well. You know, uh, my wife and myself, we recently had a, a, a little girl who's now two years old. You know, and, and we're doing quite good. I said to him, and so, so have you found a place to fellowship here yet? And the guy said to me, you know what, our last year uh, we had a little bit of a fallout there, and so we're not quite ready to get back into, into church life. You know, we, we've had several meetings, several, several discussions, and the idea, the notion that is so prevalent among believers that, you know what, I can be a Christian without going to church is so far-reaching. You know, many, many people hold that opinion. And though I would say, yes, you could be a Christian without belonging to a church, I think every Christian would want to belong to a church. You know, because if we think, just, just think back, for example, of what happened with, uh, with Saul, isn't it? Saul... You remember, was anointed king over Israel. Um, he, he was a handsome, handsome man. You, you looked at his early, early days and he seemed like a godly man. And yet, as he strived to do things in light of his own understanding, in light of what he considered to be best and most right for the kingdom, he started swerving further and further away from God. So much so that when Samuel, prior to his battle, I think I spoke about this last time I was here, so I looked through my notes. He was on the brink of that battle, if you can remember, when Samuel didn't come and he was meant to present the sacrifices before God. Uh, Saul got terrified. And eventually, you remember, he did the sacrifices himself. And just as he sacrificed before God, because his army was about to run away from him, Samuel came and said, what have you done? And he said, well, you know, I was afraid. I, was, I knew that sacrifices had to be made before God and you didn't come. And ultimately, Samuel said to Saul, does God desire sacrifice as much as he desires obedience? You know, and this is the key of this passage that we're dealing with this, mo this moment. Are we men and women who belong to Jesus Christ, who would desire to obey him in a day and age that seems to make it more and more difficult to do so. You know, we live in a world that is demanding 
in more, more ways than one, is it not? In a world where mothers and fathers these days are recorded on videos dragging their toddlers through a shopping center by the hair. In a world where a mom would look, look on as her boyfriend crushes her son to death in the back of their car seat. A world that is so broken, so corrupt, and so busy. Is it not a world in which we as God people should seek to delight in obeying Him and adhering to His precepts and structures so that we may be spared from the calamities of what happens when people follow their own knowledge, their own wisdom, and their own insights of what is right and correct in the society that we live in? You see, God has given us these precepts to guard us. And that's what I want us to focus on today, this morning and this evening. We will carry on in this evening. So my plan is now, first of all, to just lay out for you what we are going to address. And then, then we, will, we, will, we will work through this and see how God may bless us with his word this morning and this evening. Now the first thing, in light of all that we have said, the first thing we need to address from this passage is the simple statement that God desires us to be in fellowship. Actually, God commands us to gather together in fellowship. You know, and that's what I said to this major. I said to him, being outside of a church community is not an option as a believer. Because God has told us that we should not neglect to meet together. Look at verse 25 in this passage quickly. This is what, what it says there. Do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. So that is the basic statement. That is the basic premises that we will focus on this morning. And if we were all people who just read God's word and delighted in obeying him, then the sermon would have been over and you could have all been back home for your lunch quite early. But as we struggle... And as we are people who often want to say, but why, God has, but why is this the case? God has given us the answer in that regard as well. You see, this passage does not just come in isolation. What I will say first, before we just look a little bit more about what the book of Hebrews is about to inform our understanding of this better, I'll say, if, if we look at this passage, it really starts in this context. It's like it's given two statements for us. In verse 19, it says to us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So that's a statement. We have the privileged position as believers to come before a holy God. There, a way has been made for us to enter into this, this, this relationship. And because of that, because of that, ultimately we could skip over all the other things and say because of that, we should not neglect this fellowship that God has instituted. That is the summary. But what happens then is, is the writer of the book of Hebrews explains it much more clearly for us by giving us three reasons through this chapter of why it's important for us not to neglect this. Said, let us draw near with a true heart. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. Let us consider how to stir one 
another up. So let us do all of those things in light of the fact that Jesus has saved us. Let us do all of those things so that in meeting to, together we can play out the reality of all of those blessings that affects each and every one of us as a believer. You know, is it not true? Turn with me quickly to, Coloss- Coloss- uh, to Corinthians, sorry. Corinthians chapter 12. I'll just remember us briefly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this passage. But this is why it is so important for us to gather together as believers. Because what does it say when Paul deals with the issues about spiritual gift and the more supreme way being that we are to love one another? He says to us in verse 12, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks and slaves and free, and all were made to drink of the same spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of? Of hearing. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged. So, not any specific person or group of people who have seen this to be a good idea. No, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would be the body? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts, the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, of, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honors to the parts that lack it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all of them suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping administration and various kinds of tongues. And I think we see clearly the principle that is presented there is that God has given everyone in our fellowship a specific gifting, a specific purpose. And if God has given you a specific purpose and gifting in that fellowship, He has arranged you in that fellowship in a way that there is certain things that you cannot do without the other people around you. 
And there is certain things that they cannot do without you among them. So brothers and sisters, if we neglect the fellowship of the saints, the first struggle we have in this regard is that we, we, we hinder the work of God in that local fellowship. Because God has given you something that you are to impart to your brothers and sisters. And then secondly, you hinder the gifts that God has, 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 has given around you in the fellowship that are meant to impact you and form you and cultivate your relationship with Jesus every day. This is the, this is the, the first thing that we need to consider with, with this command. But let's just ask ourselves, why is it so prevalently presented to us here in the book of Hebrews? And we need, we need to understand this because actually the book of Hebrews really presents only two things to us. Two, two principles that are being taught throughout this book as it goes through all these different examples that it presents to us. The first thing that the book of Hebrews presents to us is that Jesus is superior to anything else in the world. Anything else in religion, anything else that men could have ever thought of, Jesus is superior. And then in light of that superiority that is presented to us through the book of Hebrews, it presents us then a challenge that we should be faithful to this Jesus, and that challenge is then emphasized by various warnings that we are given in the book of Hebrews. Now, people will often use the book of Hebrews and say, you see, there's people who can lose their salvation, there's people who can do this and that and all these things. That is not what these warnings in the book is all about. You know, my, my youngest boy, little Nathan, by the way, my family said I should send their regards to you. I almost forgot to mention that. Uh, but my youngest boy, Nathan, he's just like a bowl of energy. You know, he never stops. I'll sit there on the couch at home, and he'll be climbing over my head, jumping on me, and, and just going crazy. I don't know where he gets it from. And, and when we go outside and play, I almost sometimes feel like I need to tie him up or something because I'm just afraid something wrong is going to happen to him. And I feel like I am continually telling him, Noah, don't do that. Don't do that because, you know, you're going to get hurt here, you're going to get hurt there. And most of the times he's really good. When I give him a clear warning and I explain to him why something is dangerous, he heeds that warning. Now, when I say to Nathan, Nathan, there's a hole. Don't stand around this hole on the edge because you can slip and fall in. That does not mean he's going to slip and fall in the, the, the hole. He's been given a warning and he heeded that warning. So that warning provides him more protection. And in the same way, in the book of Hebrews, this is how we should look at the warnings that we are given there. And in fact, in this book, we are given Four warnings. One, one way people could look at this book is, is, is that it's the book of four you know, serious warnings to the Christian life. But it's also a book of encouragement. So with every warning, you have the encouragements that precede us. And the encouragement is this, that Christ is better than all these examples that we have in this book of Hebrews. So the first example that we're dealing with in the book of Hebrews is that Christ is better than the angels and the Torah that is presented to us in chapters 1 and 2. 
And then he goes on in chapter 3 and 4 to talk to us about Moses and the promised land and all that that entailed. But yet again exclaiming to us that Christ is better than all of that. And he moves on further in the book of Hebrews to then in chapter 8 and 10 talk about the sacrificial system. The covenants that God has made with Abraham and all the patriarchs prior to this. And then points us to the better covenant that is in Jesus Christ. Exclaiming that Jesus is better than all that went before him. And this is what we're dealing with tonight. This supremacy of Christ. This fact that Jesus is better. And if Jesus is then better than the Lord and Moses than the prophet and all those things. The Old Testament saints were called to adhere to those things and be obedient in that regard. And so as, these, as this book falls out into the fullness of what it presents. It shows us that because Jesus is better than all these things. Should we not obey Jesus even more? Than the old regulations and structures that were set up in the Old Testament. We are dealing with the supremacy of Christ. And in verse 25, in light of all this, we are then admonished. And really it's, 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 it's the, the climax of what God is calling to us in this book of Hebrews. He admonishes us, admonishes us not to neglect the meeting of the saints in light of what is described as our salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, that is the outlying aspect of it. But why is this so important? The first thing that the writer addresses us with in this passage is he says that we have had access to this Jesus through this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that was his flesh. You know, in the same way, this is why I think, I think Paul wrote this letter, because the, the way he uses this idea of the flesh is the same way that Paul refers to it throughout all his letters. So through the sacrifice of Jesus, he opened this way for us to enter into a, 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 a relationship with him. You know, if we look at what, what the media is presenting or what people, self-help people are saying in the world today, it is clear, it's clear, is it not, that people are always seeking fulfillment in one thing or another. You know, I, was, I was reading an article this week about people speaking about alternative lifestyles that can bring you happiness in this busy age that we live in. And the, the, the things they talked about seemed absurd. Sharing your home, living, living multiple families in one home, minimizing and making sure you do not have too many things. They were talking about stuff, uh, you know, a three-bedroom house could manage three families. You know, stuff like this. Just, just all these absurd ideas that they think could, could, could bring people to a place where they appreciate life, life a bit better. Multi-generational households, international communities. You know, all these things are placed out there as if you engage in these sort of things, your life will go better. I think one thing that has become clear in our society is that people no longer understand where to find true happiness. 
And they know that it's a problem. And they're seeking to find fulfill, fulfillment some way. But what is this new way that has been presented to us through the gospel? Jesus reminded us himself, did he not, in John, John chapter 14. Please, if you have your Bible, turn with me to these places. It's good for us to go through scripture and for you to see that what I'm reading to you is accurate. It's actually, when I read from scripture, it's really... The only part of this sermon that I can't mess up because it's God's word. So please listen carefully. He says in verse 6 of chapter 14. Um, uh, wrong, wrong passage. John, John chapter 14 verse 16. Six, sorry, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do not know him. Sorry, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. See, when Jesus came, when Jesus came to live the perfect life, He showed us the fullness of the gospel in His act of obedience, living a life without sin and then going to the cross to die for us. You know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting talking to a soldier. He's a transferee from the parachute regiment. He's been in, in, in the military for about 14 years now. And, and the way he put it, he just wants to come to Rimi as an extended sec settlement. You know, he, he wants to learn to be a metalsmith so that to go out into the world, he don't just have to say the only thing I can do is kill people. He can actually say he's got a trade behind himself. But this guy... You know, he professed some sort of faith. He, be, he believed in God. Um, he believed that, that there was a, a God who, you know, forgives us and who looks after us. And he said, you know, many times when he's been in a battlefield scenario, he would call out to God. But as I, as I spoke to him about his own life and his own commitment to God, it became clear that there was... From his perspective, no requirement for him to approach God except when he desperately needed him. You know, and as, as we spoke through this, I just started talking to him about the gospel. And I said to him, you know, so if you believe there is a God, do you believe this God is perfect? And he said to me, yes, well, God has to be perfect. If God is, if God is not perfect, then, you know, by what standard can we determine perfection? And I said to him, well, your observations are really great, you know, because if God is not perfect, then how will we judge what is, what is, is, is correct or what is not correct? And I said to him, so in light of this perfect nature of God that you seem to understand, how do you stand before him? And he said, well, well, nobody is perfect, you know, so, so that's, why, that's why God has to be forgiving. I said, okay, so let's, let's hold these two aspects together. If God is perfect and God is forgiving, how does he deal with the wrong things that we have done? 
Surely if you're perfect and holy and righteous, you have to deal with somebody who has done something wrong. I said to him, you know, if, 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 if you get in a scenario, painted this picture for me. I said, imagine this. Do you have a, you know, any siblings? He says, no, I don't have siblings. I said, okay. Imagine you had siblings. Little brother who's at home and uh, he's, he's a bit, bit of a loose cannon, so he's a bit naughty. And he was sitting one day in the street, you know, flicking stones at car. And this guy drives by him with a brand new Bentley. And he throws a stone up, a stone up at this car. And the car gets scratched. And the guy, actually quite a stand-up guy, fairly wealthy, gets out of the car. And all he wanted to do is say to this little boy, Listen, listen, son, what you've done is wrong. You know, you shouldn't throw stones at people's car. But your little brother being a hothead, you know, immediately started yelling obscenities at him and ran into the house. And this guy, wanting to do right yet again, thought to himself, this is not right. People shouldn't behave like this. And he thought, you know, I'd go and knock at the door and tell this guy that what's happened is wrong. So he knocked on the door wanting to speak to your dad. And your dad, being equally as much a hothead as your little brother, opened the door and, he st- and, and, and when the guy started blaming his son for for the scratch on his car. Your dad lost his temper and started shouting obscenities to the guy and pushed him out of the doorway. And the next moment, this guy just lost complete control. He stormed into your house and he actually, you know, murdered your whole family. You know, he lost complete control. And, and, And you came there, you came into the house as he was busy strangling the life out of your brother. And you managed to restrain him. And by God's grace, you didn't actually kill the guy yourself. But you, you said to yourself, no, I'm going to let justice have its way. And your police came. They took him away. And a couple of months later, you're in the courtroom. And this guy is, is sitting there in, 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 the, in the dock, so to speak. And he has a lot of money. So he's got the best lawyers in the world defending them. And the case they're presenting to the judge is that he just temporarily lost control. You know, he had a really difficult time. Uh, you know, he, 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 his wife just died that day. And, and you know, he, he lost control for a moment. Please, Your Honor, look at all the good that my client has done. He has given millions to charity. He has done this and done that. And if the judge then at the end of the day said, right, I'm a loving judge. I can see that you've done so much good in society. I'm going to set you free. I'm not going to hold you guilty for this transgression that you have made. How would you feel, I asked him. I said to him, you would probably write to every newspaper in this country and proclaim that there is a judge on the justice seat that is more wicked than the people that he sets free. That is what you would do. And he said, yeah, I guess I would. I said, the problem we have, the dilemma we have in this world, the dilemma that the gospel has, is that sin has to be paid for. And I said to him, this is the reason that every single religion in this world can't answer the problem of sin. It's only the reality that we have in Christ Jesus. Every other religion just wants to sweep your wrongdoings under the carpet, and as soon as your best deed, deed, your better deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you will be considered to be right with God. That is not a righteous and holy judge. That is a wicked judge that set wicked, wicked people free. And that dilemma doesn't end when we come to the gospel, is it not? 
It's what, it's what the, the Bible proclaimed. Does it not say in Psalm 5, God hates everyone who commits iniquity? What does that make with us? Have you committed iniquity? Have you sinned? Have I sinned? Yes, I have. So if God's word is true, if the word of God is the word of truth, then there's no way to interpret that, that passage than saying that it proclaims that God hates everyone who commits iniquity. You know, what, the, what does that do with our bumper stickers? Isn't it? God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. No, that passage says God hates everyone who commits iniquity. And if we then go on further to Proverbs 17, we have a passage that said, God abhors everyone who justifies the wicked. And he abhors those who condemns the righteous. So now, now it's emphasized. Now, now the Bible is saying, if we declare somebody to be right who is a sinner, then we become an abomination before God. So what happens then when we turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 23 onwards, when it says, let, let, let's turn to Romans 3 and, and read that together so we don't mess up a, a section. And keep that in mind now in light of those two verses we just discussed. So 3, 23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a perpetuation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the ones who have faith in Jesus. So who becomes the one who justifies the wicked all of the sudden? It's Jesus Christ himself. How can that be? Does Jesus Christ not then become an abomination before God? The answer is yes. Absolutely. On the cross, Jesus bore our sin. Jesus became that abomination before God as he held all of our sins upon himself and emptied himself, as it says in the book of Corinthians, so that we may have life. So that he could be the just and the justifier of those who has faith in Jesus Christ. This, this is the new and living way that the writer of Hebrews is, is talking about. And he says, because of this new and living way that you have gained, that you have gained this access into the presence of Jesus Christ, because of that, do not neglect the fellowship of the saints. Because of what Jesus has done for you, do not neglect meeting together, building one another up in love and good works. You see, it's easy for us sometimes, I think, as Christians to get to the point where we say, yeah, if I was ever asked to die for Jesus or if I was ever asked that I would deny Jesus, I think I could do that. 
I, I think I could, I, well, I think I could stand in a place where I would not deny Jesus. I think I could stand in a place where I would gladly die for Jesus. But brothers and sisters, sometimes the more difficult thing to do is to live for Jesus. To give him your life completely now. To say, you know what? As a husband is called to die to himself and present Christ's likeness to his wife in that regard, so every Christian is called to die to our selfish desire and live for Jesus. To seek him and grow. And one of those aspects is taking him at his word and saying, yes, God has got a purpose for me in the fellowship that he has me. You know, I would say to you, brothers and sisters, if you are here this morning, God has got you here because he has ordained that throughout the history of the world. He had determined that you would be here this morning hearing this word in this congregation. Now, whether your place is to be in this congregation in the future or not, I don't know. But what I do know is that God has meant for you to be part of a fellowship in which you give out and take in as we serve one another in light of the gospel. Because he has presented us a new and living way. Let us consider this truth. Let us consider how we sometimes hinder God's purposes in our lives and the lives of others, that we may seek to follow Him. I will, I will stop there and we will finish the rest tonight. We will, look, we will look at how these other verses, all these things that He said that we have to do, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. We will see how that further emphasizes this reality that we are called to be together as believers in more than just the Sunday morning, more than just the Sunday evening, but share one another's lives so that we may glorify God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our desire, Lord, is to know you. Our desire is to follow you and to Apply the principles that you have so clearly set out for us in your word in our daily lives, Lord. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's difficult. Life can be so busy, so distracting. So we yet again plead for your help. Help us, Father, to glorify you and to be used by you. Not just in the upbuilding of our own lives and our families' lives, but in the wider sense of the family to which you have entrusted us in the church. This body of whom Christ our Lord is the head. Lord, help us to live in light of all that that requires. Help us to, to be your servants. Help us to serve one another. And help us to love each other the way Christ has loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.